Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. At times, it can be quite maddening trying to sort out the reasoning behind public health's opposition to tobacco harm reduction. Now, it's true, not everyone within public health opposes THR products, such as vaping and smokeless tobacco, but for those who do, they seem to hold all the power. Joining us today to discuss the contentious debate over tobacco harm reduction is Dr. Lynn Kozlowski, Professor of Community Health and Health Behavior at the University of Buffalo, School of Public Health and Health Professions. Dr. Kozlowski, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. You're welcome. And some quick background for our viewers, Dr. Kozlowski is an international recognized expert on tobacco use, e-cigarettes and nicotine policy. He's contributed to four U.S. Surgeon General's reports on smoking and health since 1981, and he's a founding member of the Society for Nicotine and Tobacco Research. Dr. Kozlowski, there's a lot of strong feelings over the vaping issue. Why is that? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that tobacco use in the form of cigarette smoking was just such a deadly product, killing three and five users prematurely. It was a very high priority for the public health community to deal with it. And I think it's as if the tobacco control movement felt they had their arms around the neck of tobacco and it was being beaten. And then vaping came along uh, that seemed actually to have much of the same appeal as tobacco, uh, but dramatically less risk. Uh, but there was a fear that this would be a game changer in the wrong direction, that this would, this would create a new generation of addicts who there was also a fear that they'd move on to cigarettes. And uh, I understand the fear, but I don't think the evidence has uh, shown that to really be uh, the proper viewpoint. Even with the epidemic, so-called epidemic of teen vaping, you still think that the evidence there, it doesn't show that? Well, I don't, I mean, it's the so-called epidemic of teen vaping doesn't pay a lot of attention to regular heavy vaping among teens. It, it's monitoring largely monthly vaping. It's often party vaping. It's not the same kind of thing as becoming a daily cigarette smoker in your youth. Uh, and uh, actually, I should say, I don't consider any nicotine product a health food. I'm not encouraging people to go out and start using nicotine products of any sort. Uh, but I do think that Cigarettes by far, combusted inhaled tobacco products, are by far the most deadly product. And we've got to do everything we can to decrease the use of that, to prevent people from starting its use and encourage people to stop. And I think that vaping, properly regulated, is a wonderful tool to combat cigarette smoking. And it's dramatically less harmful. So that position that is dramatically less harmful seems to be more prominent across the pond in the UK, whereas those here in North America seem very, you know, adverse to that position. Describe that continental divide. Well, I think it attributes some of it to the impact of Michael Russell's research on tobacco use, on nicotine use. Uh, Michael uh, viewed that nicotine use was driving tobacco use. And for a long time, 
be appreciated that if, uh, for example, if you used nasal snuff, was, which wasn't getting anything into your lungs, that that would be a lot better for your health than smoking cigarettes. Uh, and he showed that people got a lot of nicotine from it. And he was a pioneer of nicotine gum, of nicotine replacement pharmaceutical gum. In fact, a lot of the senior tobacco researchers are, were trained by Michael Russell in the UK. Uh, and I have to say, I've always had a strong admiration for Michael uh, and his research. And uh, it's no doubt had an influence on me. And much like my uh, UK colleagues, I've been um, inclined to take a similar view. I'd also say that in the United States, one of the things that influenced me dramatically uh, was the work of Edward Brecker, who did a landmark book for Consumers Union called Licit and Illicit Drugs. And Edward Brecker talked about nicotine-based harm reduction. And he also talked about the need to uh, be frank with people about Cigarette smoking being, a, being an addiction, being a form of drug dependence, not being just a habit. Uh, and that also opened the door to using nicotine as a way to fight cigarette smoking. Let's talk about nicotine uh, for a bit or for the rest of the show, I'm sure. How addictive is it? Well, um, I, I would describe it as a worthy drug of addiction, but... Uh, I don't like saying this is the most addictive drug, that's the least addictive drug. Uh, that in fact, among nicotine users, you find, I think, a range of dependence. I, mean, I think core to the definition of an addiction is that it's a psychoactive drug use that's difficult for the user to stop. And uh, it can be very difficult for users to stop using nicotine. But the contextual effects on that are huge. If, for example, if you live in a household with no other tobacco users, no other smokers, it's actually easier for you to quit smoking. If you have all of your best friends are cigarette smokers, you live, you work with smokers, it's much harder to give up. Uh, so. In some sense, you can't think of the addiction as just residing in the individual. It, it's also a result of the interaction of the individual with that person's context. So in the context of vaping, is actually vaping a, a, an efficacious tool to quit smoking? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that it is. That the, uh, one of the things that influenced me early on was an old friend of mine who I would describe as the heaviest smoker I ever knew, who was describing to me that vaping satisfied him completely, that he was able to put down his cigarettes and that he enjoyed it. Uh, and I was uh, uh, pleased that my friend had that tool to give up smoking. He certainly tried nicotine gum, nicotine patches. They didn't have the potency to help him quit. But I think the other thing about it, if you, if you talk about nicotine gum as a treatment product, nobody really argues that it's a lot of fun to use nicotine gum. It becomes a, an aid to cope with withdrawal, but it's not 
a highly pleasant activity to use nicotine gum or the nicotine lozenge. And so if you have a lower risk product that's satisfying, that, you know, dare I say it, that's fun to use, that becomes a, uh, I think, a powerful tool against cigarettes. And I think a lot of the battle against vaping, a lot of the concern uh, to throw in regulations to keep vaping down uh, is unfortunate because it turns the focus away from cigarettes. That, you know, you have places that have banned vaping and there are cigarettes on the shelves of pharmacies. You know, and that vaping is not the thing that's killing users, three and five users prematurely. Um, and so it, it's the, 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 what I might call a hyper concern about vaping diminishes what I think we still need to keep our attention on. And that is using all the tools we can to keep young people and old people away from combusted tobacco use. And I think that's a very good point. A lot of our viewers over the years have commented to the, to the fact that, you know, they were told for 20, 30 years to quit smoking. It's the thing they must do to save their lives. And they do that then with vaping. And then the animosity, derision, contempt, disgust for vaping shown by many in public health seems to be so overblown and, and outweigh uh, the messaging around smoking that it's confusing, disheartening, and you feel a bit lost. Actually, I think there often has not been enough attention to or sympathy for the perspective of the smoker, of the tobacco user, of the nicotine user. And so, as you describe, if you have an individual who can feel personally the value of not smoking anymore, and they've been a heavy smoker for years, and they're, they're engaging in another form of nicotine use, uh, and they're liking it, and, uh, I mean, to my mind, actually, one of the ways I often describe it is that if uh, if my brother were a smoker, I'd do everything I could to get my brother to switch to vaping, and I'd be glad if that's the best he could do to get off nicotine use. And uh, to be fair, I'd also be saying that uh, none of this is a health food. If down the road you uh, feel able to invest your money in other pleasures and not nicotine through vaping, great. Um, but I think the, I mean, one of the other things that needs to be emphasized with vaping or even using smokeless tobacco as a harm reduction tool is that you want to strongly discourage people from doing both. That I think it becomes easy to kid yourself if you're still smoking cigarettes and you knock off a few of the cigarettes by doing some vaping in addition to that. Um, the evidence is that you haven't really done yourself much of a favor. You want to give yourself over to the harm reduction product as a full-fledged substitute. And you might have to work to stay off combusted cigarettes, but that's important work to do. And you're talking about dual use, and I've been a bit suspect on that. As a former smoker, I know how hard it is to try to quit, and sometimes you're kind of 
juggling a couple of different options while you're okay. hoping that it's going to stick. And it just always seemed to me that the dual use scare was designed to, you know, kind of push people away from vaping altogether. I agree with you on that, but I think the message still needs to be, uh, you might start out with dual use. I mean, I imagine many people would start out with dual use, but you should not have a false sense of progress. A whole host of smoking cessation aids are best thought of as tools to help you stop smoking. And think of it, a tool to change a tire on a car uh, might be a, a, a lug wrench. It's a lot of work to change a tire on a car. That tool doesn't do it all for you. You've got to put in some commitment. And, and I think using the tools to give up cigarette smoking, you want to be uh, trying to work up the commitment to as soon as you can, stay off combusted cigarettes completely and then feel a genuine sense of progress. Who are public health? Like, they, they see, it seems to be an amorphous group. Uh, certain- yeah, well, they're factions. I mean, I think that there are a number of highly respected, committed public health practitioners. Uh, and actually, in some circles, I view myself as one of them who thinks, well, the way I would frame it is that I think tobacco control needs to be comprehensive. And I use an analogy that has been well established in work on how do we prevent teenagers from getting into problems caused by sexual activity? Abstinence only programs are well established to fail. If just you just tell kids don't have sex, full stop, that's the only thing, forget about safer sex, we know those programs aren't effective. What's effective is a comprehensive program where you do the best you can to discourage sexual activity. And in some kids that will work, but at the same time, you teach safer sex practices, you teach condom use and so on. And so you try to do the best you can with both. It's not either or. And I I do regret that so many of my colleagues in public health don't take don't generalize that principle to tobacco use, even with adolescents. I mean, I don't want any kid using any nicotine product, but I know some will. And often It'll be some of the most disadvantaged kids, individuals who are school dropouts or individuals with mental illness, other challenges in their lives who are engaging in these activities who don't want them to do. Sex and drug use and all kinds of things and tobacco included among them. I would view that they have the right as well. In fact, it's been appreciated for sex education that kids have a human right to protect themselves, to have the knowledge about safer sex practices, and also to receive encouragements to not engage in sex. Be comprehensive. And I really think that that is a proper public health stance, an ethical public health stance uh, for children and adults. Uh, and the, the But there is a divide. I mean, there are respected public health colleagues 
who are, uh, I go back to that image I started with of the, the feeling of you've got your hands around the neck of tobacco and you want to get it out. You want to defeat it completely. You want to eradicate it. And to hear people talking positively about another nicotine delivery system seems like going in the wrong direction. Uh, but uh, I view comprehensive tobacco control means we want to do everything we can to discourage any nicotine use. But at the same time, have a public that's well aware of the dramatic differential risks of tobacco products. I also would say that I think public health should be incentivizing the use of less harmful products. I mean, those jurisdictions which want to want to tax vaping to make it as expensive as cigarettes or tax smokeless tobacco or nicotine lozenges to be as expensive as cigarettes, I think they're missing out on a tool we know that can work to get people off cigarettes. We want cigarettes to be at the pinnacle of expense. And I mean, again, I don't want to encourage the use of any of these products, but I think one can still have a sizable differential risk, uh, differential incentive to use some products. And um, Well, in applying that then to adults, though, I would imagine that you've got a bit more of a stronger recommendation. If you are an adult who smokes, they should consider switching, whether that's vaping or, say, smokeless tobacco. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And, and I mean, they should know. I mean... There are some complexities in harm reduction. In the earliest days of tobacco harm reduction, around the time of the 1964 Surgeon General Report, which was the landmark report in the U.S. a couple of years after the British report, but the landmark report in the U.S. that announced that smoking was causing cancer and other health problems. But one of the things that came out of that was Cigars and pipes got a relatively good clean bill of health in the first Surgeon General's report. So there were physicians. Uh, that you can find a transcript of the president of the American Medical Association going on a major morning television show after, in 1964 telling people, well, switch to cigars or pipes, uh, get off cigarettes. Now, it turns out that cigars or pipes are a very risky tobacco harm reduction product. And in the, at the time of the first Surgeon General report, the data they had on cigar smokers were largely smokers who would only ever smoke cigars. And it turns out those people are less likely to inhale cigars, so they weren't getting it into their lungs. When cigarette smokers were pushed to cigars, they maintain the habit of inhalation. And so as a harm reduction product, it sucked. Uh, and the, I mean, there was an attempt to come up with harm reduction cigarettes, so-called low tar, low tar and nicotine, low yield cigarettes, ultralight, light cigarettes. They also sucked as a harm reduction product because of the people's smoking behavior. It seems, Dr. Kozlowski, that there's been a chasing going on. Like, there's like the ghost 
of the safer cigarette has been haunting vaping. I think that's true. That's an excellent point that many of my colleagues in public health, they point to the clear tragedy of the low tar cigarette, a cigarette that appeared to be less dangerous, that probably diminished a smoker's interest in quitting because they had a safer product that they liked. Uh, but it turned out that people compensated through their behavior in what they got from those products. There were ventilation holes on the filters that people blocked with their lips, or they simply took bigger puffs. But the, the body count from the low-tar cigarette was pretty much the same as the body count for the high-tar cigarette. Yet the image was they were safer. So many of my public health colleagues said, well, the industry fooled us. So we're not going to trust the industry at all. We're not going to trust vaping because they don't care about public health. They point to that. Now, my view is it's an empirical issue. Personally, I don't trust anybody. Uh, my colleagues, myself, big pharma, the, the tobacco industry. And if somebody proposes there's a lower risk product, that needs to be evaluated. You, of course, don't take them at their word. You want to look at the toxicology. You want to look at what epidemiology is generated from it and make judgments based on that. And if you look closely at the toxicology of how people smoke cigarettes, you would have known early on that low-tar cigarettes were a boondoggle. Uh, but so I think it's, it's uh, I, I'd call it a fallacy. It's a fallacy to say that, oh, they fooled me, fooled me once. I'm not going to allow myself to be fooled again. I think we've got to put our empirical pants on and say, let's judge these products as they come along. Somehow the concept that nicotine is the most harmful aspect of a cigarette um, it has taken hold to the point where public health will recommend less nicotine, but you still get the same amount of tar and carcinogens. Insofar as you view nicotine as addictive, for some people, that's enough of a sin for it to be intolerable. That, that even, if the, even if the addiction doesn't come along with the shortening of your life, for some people that's intolerable. Now, uh, some of these people, I think, are also addicted to caffeine, but they're not fretting about it to the same extent. Uh, but the, the well, and let uh, me just ask: Isn't your dissertation back in the day with regard to caffeine and nicotine? Yeah, I did. I did do a project on how does the manipulations of caffeine influence nicotine intake. Everybody knows that my position is, uh, well, if I go back to my brother as an example, and my poor brother has never smoked, uh, but I'll, one's brother, let's say. Um, you know, if, if if my brother were into nicotine addiction, I'd like it to be in a form of nicotine addiction that didn't shorten his life. And then I wouldn't particularly fret about the indulgence that is there in the addiction that he's engaging in. But I'm, I'm, I'm not alone in that view, but there are people who have a very different view, that, that addiction per se is bad. And... And one of the fears, one of the great fears is of the, of the nicotine, of the gateway 
that if you have a nicotine addict, they're going to come to really want to get to the hard stuff, which is cigarettes. And I think some of that, I think, is bred of people failing to recognize how satisfying some modern vaping products can be. That you can find vapors who find them satisfying, enjoyable to use. They don't miss smoking in the least. They're happy to be vaping. So it's not as if you were vaping, you would have this temptation to get to cigarettes because you were vaping. Uh, I mean, that same concern was there for smokeless tobacco use. Smokeless tobacco use is clearly a well-established, with decades of epidemiology, a less hazardous form of tobacco use. Uh, you know, if you consider lung cancer, obstructive lung disease as major killers, well, those are gone with smokeless tobacco. You're not getting stuff into your lungs from that. Uh, the, but there is a fear with smokeless tobacco that it's going to be a gateway to cigarettes, that people certainly couldn't be satisfied with smokeless tobacco. They'd always want to move up to cigarettes. Dr. Kozlowski, you write in your 2014 paper titled Understanding the Origins of Anger, Contempt, and Disgust in Public Health Policy Disputes that harm reductionists tend to place great weight on fairness and harm, while harm reduction opponents often seek to balance these factors with concerns about in-group authority and purity. Could you explain this conflict and in, 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 in this perspective there? There's a conflict in perspectives. I, I, think, I think it's easiest to uh, focus the discussion on adolescents using tobacco products, using nicotine products. And that for many people, the thought of a, of a teenager, an adolescent, using any nicotine product is disgust, disgusting. Disgust is an emotional reaction. It's a moral, emotional reaction that you're disgusted at the idea of any kid using these products. And if you imagine a good kid who's not doing anything bad, you'd feel a sense of contamination, of pollution, of damaging their purity by them using any kind of nicotine product. Uh, and I think that moral emotion adds energy to the opposition to harm reduction. It's a disgusting idea. I mean, so when I say some people are object to addiction per se, nicotine addiction per se, even if it didn't cause any other physical harm, and that's because they are disgusted by that idea. Now, on the other side, the people, the people who are more supportive of harm reduction, they give a somewhat higher weighting to individual rights, to uh, sort of minding their own business with respect to what other people do. Uh, and if you go to the example of so, keeping the example with kids, if I accept that some kids will be using some form of tobacco, that's what history has taught us, that's what contemporary evidence teaches us. 
insofar as those tobacco nicotine users know to use and are using less harmful products, I'd like to see that. The harm reductionist tends to care more about individual rights, tends to care more about fairness themes. Now, well, I describe disgust as a form of a moral emotion. When rights are violated, the moral emotion there is anger. People get angry when rights are violated. And so there's emotions on both sides, adding energy to the pro-harm reduction people and the anti-harm reduction people. And that the, uh, and I think it's important to recognize that and try to, try to uh, well, understand where the other side's coming from. Uh, but if, if you also think about it, that emotional reactions are what they are. You don't argue people out of emotional reactions. And if you're angry over the violation of rights, you're angry over the violation of rights. Uh, and if you're disgusted, you don't, you, you don't think before you get disgusted, you think after you get disgusted. Disgusted is the initial emotional reaction. And the, um, the pro and anti-harm reduction domain is existing in this area that's influenced by moral emotions on both sides. When it comes to regulatory policy around vaping, just keep in mind the United States and Canada. They both are panning out to be quite similar. Bans, bans, bans. What can you say about the regulatory policy unfolding in North America with regards to nicotine restrictions and flavor bans? Uh, I think the nicotine restriction issue is pretty clear cut. I do think one of the real powers of a vaping product as a substitute for cigarettes is that they have satisfying levels of nicotine in them. And I think the other issue is, uh, so the nicotine comes in a vehicle, and if you've got low-dose nicotine, you've got to ingest more of the vehicle to get the nicotine in you, and I don't think that's desirable. Uh, so I think... You, you, you don't want to disable vaping as a competitor to cigarettes. And I think that, that, that a low nicotine level. Now, my belief is that the market, that consumers would quite like to have a range of, of nicotine doses available. Flavors... I think are a little more complicated, but I think the the um, I think the secret to vaping as a true competitor to cigarettes is that it should be desirable, satisfying, enjoyable product. And insofar as flavors are a component of that, one wants to be very careful about knocking out those flavors. Um, the I mean, I have seen some research that certain flavors may raise toxicological issues, that they might not be, for, for toxicological issues, some flavors might be best to avoid. Actually, the, some of the marketing, I mean, when, let me draw another analogy, that with alcohol products, there were concerns about 
wine coolers and alco pops, they're low dose alcohol products. And people said, well, those would be products that kids would use to recruit to drinking. And what a number of studies showed was that if a kid wanted to get into drinking, they wanted to get into drinking. They didn't want to drink with training wheels on, they wanted some whiskey or some vodka. I mean, so that the whole image of what kids would start with was uh, a bit mistaken. I mean, I, I think the key issue is people are wanting to have a lower nicotine product to reduce the addiction liability. Um, but again, we cannot lose track of the fact that cigarettes are still sitting on the shelves and that as we beat up vaping products, as we scare people about vaping products, it's clear you get some people going back to cigarettes because they're afraid of vaping.